0: for the invitation to be here today. It's good to be with you uh, again at SMAC and uh, to bring God's Word uh, to us. If you have your Bibles, keep open at that passage from uh, Luke chapter 1. uh, But let me pray now uh, for us. Lord God, your Word is light and life. And we pray that you'll shine the light of your Word in our hearts so that we may live. That we may live for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, we pray. Amen. Well, it's a boy. It's a boy. Oh, well, what's his name? That's the first question we ask, isn't it? We hear on Facebook these days, it used to be by telegram or telephone, uh, that it's a boy or a girl. What's his name? The first thing. I quite like naming babies uh, because I don't have any children of my own. So it becomes a little hobby you see of uh, trying to name other people's babies. And um, you know John, well it's nothing very outrageous, isn't it? I mean there's lots of John. Just stands up who's John here? Probably there's well, it, I mean, it's a relatively really it, 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 so uh, common name. Sometimes we can be a bit more adventurous in names. For example, uh, my former assistant pastor, when I was a pastor in Australia, uh, he called his child, and I can't remember even now if it was a girl or a boy, but I'll tell you this is an exotic name, India. Now, I did say to Jonathan that I thought his geography was a little bit strange. And I was very worried when the second child came and he called that child Pakistan. <laughs> I don't think he did, but I don't remember what he said when I was born. I said, I shouldn't have since I moved to Malaysia. For quite a while, I tried to encourage my youth pastor when they were expecting their first child. That my favorite biblical name is Tiglath Pilza. <laughs> and you may never have met somebody called Tiglath Pilza, but actually it was quite common because the one in the Bible is the third Tiglath Pilza. And my youth pastor almost was persuaded by me. I kept threatening him that when I baptized their baby, I would name him Dylan Bilzer. He got the T of the eye right, but then became T. <laughs> but I had success. Yeah. Uh, again, a friend of mine was having their first child three years ago, and I kept saying to them, I think they knew it was a boy, Boaz. <laughs> Boaz, I've never met a Boaz, which surprises me. Boas I think Boaz is the most godly man of the whole of the autism. But I've just had success. He called his son Sam he didn't quite get to Boaz. And, and, and the adjacent book, but not quite right. But just recently, two friends in Pakistan where I teach have both had sons and both called them, at my suggestion, Boaz. He go, something to be said for Pakistan. Judas or Boaz or some other exotic name that would make it a bit more memorable. After all, when we think of this baby, John, we, we have to qualify which John it is. It's not John the disciple, it's John the Baptist that's been born here. Why can't they all have sort of different names? John is what he's been called. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth, she bore him. What's his name? John? See, there's actually an element of surprise here. For us it's a common name, but then it seems to be quite an unusual name, at least for this couple, to call their son John, a surprising choice. But then it's a surprising child. Because if you remember back, I'm not sure here, I know you've been going through a series in week one, two weeks, maybe three weeks, if you look back that far, you may remember something about the announcement. Of this child who's born. It's surprising, us. it's in many ways a miracle baby, because the couple, the parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were elderly and without child. So they're not expecting to have any more any children. They've gone past the childbearing age, it seems, and yet this angel Gabriel appears and announces to them, if you remember back in, in our verse 13. The angel announced and said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. That's where the name comes from. Not from some strange person like me trying to persuade their friends to use this bizarre name. It comes from an angel from Gabriel. You shall call him John. But Zechariah, you may remember, doubted this. He shouldn't have doubted even though they're elderly have no children, even though this looks to be a miracle way, this is the sort of job that God has often done. You go know, way back almost to the beginning of the Bible, another old couple, barren, no children, into their 70s and 60s, or Abraham and Sarai, were told by God, not only that they'd have a child, but that Abraham would be the father of numerous descendants, Different with Abraham and Sendariah and Elizabeth is that it took God another 24 years to produce their son. He did give you a 75 or so, and God promised you a child, it would be there within nine months. <laughs> but then God waited and waited and waited. And when Abraham started doubting, which happened a few times, but on one particular occasion, when he was doubting that God would actually deliver on this strange promise took him up, made him look up at the night sky, and said as numerous as these stars of the sky are, so will your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord and was credited to him as righteousness. But second writer, who we assume knew the scriptures well, he was a priest, he was serving in the temple, we assume he ought to have known those scriptures. Doubted God. And if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, when we were doing this earlier part of this chapter, in effect, as punishment his doubt or unbelief, he would be mute. Indeed, maybe it seems death as well <coughs> until this event occurs. Now, everyone says is not the only time. There are others who praise God for miracle babies through the Old Testament, like for example, whose first child eventually became was called Samuel. That Zechariah, despite all of that testimony, didn't believe. Back in verse 18, how will I know that this is so? For I'm an old man and my wife is getting on in years. So for nine months, it <coughs> maybe a touch more. Zechariah has been speechless, not with excitement, but as of punishment or discipline from God through the angel David. It's quite striking in a way because in this section of Scripture in fact in the whole Gospel where speaking is so important, where the word is so important, the word of the angel, the word of the mother the word the boy will say when he grows up and the words that the person to whom the boy testifies are so important Zechariah has no words speechless clear in this story that he must have explained something to his wife, why he speechless, what the angel had said, presumably by writing it down, as we're told later, on oh, his tablet. Some of you here have got tablets, you think they're pretty modern. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Zechariah did you too, the time. Well, the question then is as we get to this point, to this narrative today, has Zechariah learned faith? from what's happened in his life over the previous months. The story uh, is taken up on the 8th day when he's to be circumcised. The command to be circumcised again goes back to Genesis and again goes back to Abraham where all of them of the household and descent of Abraham are to be circumcised. The times in Old Testament history that had been had at last, but it's completely practiced from the time uh, here in John the Baptist's time, Zebrah's time. There's no more about it being the eighth day. That seems to have become a tradition uh, by the time of the uh, Gospels. And so on the eighth day, like, this baby boy is to be circumcised. The circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant of belonging to God. The people of God belonging to God. A sign actually given in response to Abraham's lack of faith when he had sexual relations with his wife's maid to produce a child. So it was a sign given by way of a rebuke. That is, trust God, be faithful to God, keep his promise. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they The neighbors and those sorts of you know, nosy, bossy people. am not quite sure who they are exactly. But they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. Well, of course there is a tradition that you would name a child with a name that comes out of your family, although to name your child exactly after your father doesn't actually seem to have been a common practice. You What's know, your name? Zechariah, Ben Zechariah. Zechariah, son of Zechariah. is a little bit of a mouthful. But nonetheless, they, they, whoever they were, are going to call him Zechariah. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. Clearly, Zechariah has communicated all of this to Elizabeth over the previous nine months or so. Elizabeth certainly trusts what the angel told her husband. Isn't that interesting? The angel spoke to him. He didn't believe. Him. He's made the mute, probably deaf. And then he communicates in writing to his wife. She believes it. Now, admittedly, she's got the sign of her deaf and mute husband in addition. But what the angel said was not to her. She only knows about hand. And yet she believes. And she wants to call her son John. He's the key. The narrative touched on him early in the chapter. We had then a diversion during the nine months, so to speak. Now the baby's been born. Has Zechariah learned his faith? Has he learned faith through this whole episode?
1: So they began motioning to the father
0: to find out what name he wanted to give. And he asked for a writing tab. Then motioning to the father replies, that he is dead, so they are having to do sort of sign language to ask him, "What do you think?" So he gets his tablet, we're told, and he wrote, "His name is John, if not we will call him John, or his name will be, or something like that." But his name is. It's actually a bold statement, strongest he could make. Zechariah has. Believed. Zechariah has learned faithful obedience through his discipline of being mute and deaf for the previous months. And immediately his speech returns. Exactly what was promised serving His speech comes back now that this is fulfilled Immediately. So we're told in 64. Immediately his mouth was opened. The passage implies that it's by God. Who opens his mouth and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. The angel's word fulfilled. How important that is as a thing through scripture, not necessarily an angel's word, but ultimately God's word, whether from an angel or a prophet or a lawgiver. God's word being fulfilled time after time after time often in the smallish things, so that we can have absolute confidence in the bigger things. And so here, the announcement was made about what this child will do before he was even conceived, back in the early part of chapter 1, we saw it recently I guess. But the short-term thing about Zemrari being speechless this time, that comes true very quickly. So, in all the years of this boy growing up to adulthood, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth will have conflicts about what, what God is about to do for the long term. And that's a biblical pattern. The God often has these short term promises that get quickly fulfilled as a foundation, like evidence for us to trust the long term promises that may only be fulfilled. So, one of the key things for us as Christians is reading the scriptures to gain more and more confidence in the utter faithfulness of God and the knowledge of what He promises. So, that even though in our world circumstances look so different, after all, this old couple doesn't look like it's going to have a child. So often, those promises seem to run counter with what we deserve in the world. And yet, we know that every promise will be one day perfectly and fully fulfilled, even if it's the long hour time on earth. That's one of the key roles of Scripture. It's a key part of this passage. To give us confidence it's not about this baby necessarily, or even about his role, but that what God says and promises will come true if not already. This is God's doing. In fact, the angel that she, uh, he spoke to uh, Zechariah earlier in the chapter said, "I come from the presence of God." It's God's word that's been fulfilled. It's not the angel who is the primary focus here. <coughs> it's so true. The narrative does not really focus on Zechariah coming to faith. That is the key to this episode. Is not learn from Zechariah. Don't avoid you know, Don't repeat his mistake. End up. Make sure you are faithful, like he ended up in faithful. That's actually not the main thrust of the story. It's a minor threat. That Zechariah has come from some unbelief to faith and praising God. That's a good thing. But it's not actually the main thing. Notice some other things. Notice how other people are drawn into these events. This is not simply a private matter between Elizabeth and Zechariah and God. So, when the baby is born in verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great uh, mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Well, she's an older lady, unexpected to have a child. Other neighbors are rejoicing. They know that this is the Lord's doing, and they rejoice. But then in verse 61, they said to her, when she said the name we be none of your relatives has that name. That's a very peculiar name. That's not an issue for us often. We often choose names that have no family connections. Back in there, it would be unusual. Again, notice how these other people, whether they're relatives or neighbors, they're involved in the story in a way. And then again in verse 63, when Zechariah says his name is John. We're told all of them were amazed. Not his wife, but all of the neighbors and the relatives and the friends. All these hammers on were involved in the story. Things were talked about throughout the entire country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, "What then will this child become, the Redeemer hand the Lord These neighbors, relatives, and other people, drawn to the story by Luke, not by reflecting what truly happened, but Luke to. Live them in the story, in the account, as a way of also involving us, the reader, that in some ways they reflect something of what we, or the original readers, might reflect. But in particular, to make us wonder. When he says or quotes their words, what then will this child become? What will be his role? What will be his job? Clearly, something significant is being. We're reading a sort of book for university. At the end of of, several pages of information, it says, Questions for Reflection. I (laughs) always skip I'm too impatient. But that's what's happening here. Before we move on, let's reflect. What will this child become? We know something about that from earlier in the chapter. It's not a totally empty question. But Luke, as he writes this and quotes them, is making us reflect about what will this child become. That is, when the angel Gabriel spoke at the beginning of the chapter, she said, "Secondly, to Zechariah, you won't speak until this happens, and now it's not true. The first thing, it was what this child will be. The question is making us think, do we trust that, word? the job of that is will be as the angel Gabriel said, we're going know we read on, we know the story. But at this point, I did. forcing us to stop, reflect, and think. But both of John is not a private matter. Others are born in including readers and including us. Because God is teaching us in be the Lord God of Israel. Words of praise, beginning of verse 68. under the influence of the Spirit. But it's very striking when what he says. You see, most parents of the firstborn, or of their firstborn, are exclusively totally fixated and resolved by their firstborn. You don't notice that. Maybe some of you have experienced that. And I suspect what happens to the next generation, when grandparents, bananas over their first grandchild as well. I remember when my sister had her firstborn, I was inundated with photographs in those days it was before internet and Facebook. Virtually every Christmas and birthday present for some years were little albums of my niece later to be added to by a nephew. But these days, of course, Facebook gets saturated. With pictures of the firstborn from their first minute of life, virtually, are on Facebook before they're even washed sometimes. My little Johnny, here's a picture of his first smile. My little Johnny has gone gula or gal or something like that for the first time. My little Johnny has taken a step for the first time. My little Johnny has eaten two for the first time. My little Johnny was the best in his class at jumping. At kindergarten, my little Johnny... from Psalms and other places as well. Zechariah knows his Bible, which is why he should have known about Abraham and Sarah in the child of Noah very old well as well. And what he reflects in all of these quotes is not just a sort of random, you know, um, what's the word I want uh, proof testing of finding something in Scripture to say what he wanted to say. Zechariah's words of the Old Testament that dot throughout this statement of praise, reflect the fact that he sees one, that the whole of the Old Testament story, that all of God's working in history is coming to a grand climax in the events that are about to occur. It's not a random selection of Old Testament ideas here. So notice what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh God of Israel, for He has looked favorably on His people and redeemed them. God is looking favorably as he's actually made a visitation to them. Old Testament language. Just as God made a visit, literally in Exodus it says that, to rescue them from slavery to Pharaoh, Just as God did in David to rescue them mightily from the hands of the Philistines. And now what's happening is a final, active visit from God to look favorably on his people to bring them the ultimate rescue. From the real lasting eternal enemy as well. And then in verse 69, he has raised up for us a mighty Savior in the house of his servant David. Again, not a random idea from the Old Testament. For David is one of those key linchpin figures of the Old Testament. David, the second king of Israel, to whom was promised an everlasting dynasty of Davidic kings over the throne of the people of God something that by the time of Zechariah seems to have come to an end. But no. Zechariah says that God has raised up for us a mighty Savior in the house of his servant David. All the promises made to David in 2 Samuel are now finding their climactic fulfillment in the events about to occur. And not only that, but after David's promises or the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, we find dozens and dozens of references to those promises in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, in Amos, in most of the prophets, and the Psalms as well. So what Zechariah is saying is that those promises made from 2 Samuel, that are reflected through the story of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, in the second part of Chronicles, in Psalms and in most of the prophets, are all coming to their climactic fulfillment in the events that are about to occur. To save us from (coughs) our enemies, maybe for some they thought that was wrong, very much their enemy at the time. The oppressive regime that was controlling the promised land. But even more perhaps. So the promises to David in verse 69 were spoken through the mouth of his holy prophets of old, as I've said that we will be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, he said, great David's greater son has come to bring all those promises to their glorious fulfillment and kindness. But more than that, because then he goes on to say that thus God has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors. Which ancestors? That word. in typically in the Old Testament refers not to just any grandfather, great-grandfather, but to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what he's made explicit here. God has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham. To Abraham, firstly, were made the promises that initiated God's plan of universal redemption, the promise of numerous descendants who would live in a promised land under the blessing of God that would attract all the nations to be blessed under God and in relationship with God. That's God's plan of salvation. Initiated by the promises, of the covenant, and the oath made to Abraham from Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, Reiterated to Jacob in Genesis 26 to Isaac, sorry, to Isaac in Genesis 26 to Jacob in Genesis 28. Those promises set the pattern, the drive, for the Old Testament story. If you imagine that through the Old Testament lies the Lebariah, Utara, and Salatah, oh, however, right. You know, you know what I mean. The north-south highway that runs through Scripture, the four major lanes of the highway are the four promises to Abraham. Where the idea to bigger, Two more Israel are added with promises to David. It becomes a six-lane heart of descendants, land, blessing, and nations to Abraham, a king in the Davidic line, and the temple promised to David. And by referring to David and Abraham, Zechariah recognizes and understands exactly what the Old Testament story is all about: God's universal salvation, promised to Abraham 2,000 years before Zechariah. The promises of David, roughly a thousand years before Zechariah. And now, extraordinary, he sees this major thing through the Old Testament coming to its glorious climax and fulfillment. That through the descendants of Abraham, the world will be won back to God. Through a descendant of David, a king who will rule the world will be won back to God. And a key problem, of course, that the Old Testament is dealing with is it. the problem in the end of human sin. Not a political problem, really. Not just overthrowing political enemies, the Philistines and then the Midianites and the Edomites or the, uh, the Ammonites or others. But a spiritual problem of dealing with sin. Zechariah understood that. So he goes on to say that. The oath he swore to our ancestor Abraham in verse 73 to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, not that we're simply liberated to live our own lives, but might serve him, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, without fear in holiness and righteousness before him for our days. That, brothers and sisters, is the Old Testament. And it finds its fulfillment. In the new, in the events that Zechariah is is anticipating. This rescue is not political, but spiritual. It's about holiness and righteousness. That's why God made the promises to Abraham. It's why God made the promises to David. In between, it's why God gave Israel the law. It's why he rescued them from Egypt. It's why he brought them to Mount Sinai. It's why he raised up David as king. And even though technically, as Elias speaks these words, they are not yet fulfilled, all of this long sentence is in the past tense. So certain so definite, so strong is his faith in what God is about to do. <coughs> it's not about John. It's not what John's going to do. It's not what little John is coming for. This great long sentence of praise <coughs> is about the one to whom little John Oh, what? It's not amazing. He's just got his first child, he. that you Old Testament allusion to a famous, famous passage in Isaiah chapter 40 that puts forth to return the return of people from the exile in Babylon. The There's this great disaster in the end of the Old Testament story. They came back from the land, to the land, from exile, in the Old Testament itself. they were never, never back to the fulfillment of those promises. So a real return from exile is about to happen. So when Father Zechariah says about little Johnny, your job is to prepare the way. That's Isaiah 40. And they are exactly the words that little Johnny is going to say in 20 or 30 years' time when he's an adult. And when he introduces the adult Jesus to the world. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. That's what he did. Calling people to repentance. Because the great need of humanity is a spiritual need, not a political need. It's for forgiveness of sins, for holiness and righteousness in life. So then he says, by the tender mercy of our Lord, the dawn from on high will break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Guide our feet into the way of peace. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The little Johnny's walk this is an to announce the door and ask praise of the Lord. This is mercy and grace. God has willed favor at the beginning of this singing of praise and at the end by his tender generous... mercy. Say, knows what that's about. Because he has received the tender mercy of God in his own life. God's great mercy, giving him a son. Let his tongue speak in praise of Almighty God. As Zechariah was treated mercifully by God, so is the world. Undeserved. Delivered, redeemed, saved, forgiven, guided the language that's used in this hymn of praise. No,